Hey everyone, welcome to episode 12, How's That Day? It is a culture rundown with Tom and Phil. I'm Phil Wiedenheft, that is. Phil Wiedenheft, here to introduce you to my co-host, Bond. Tom Bond, that is. Hello. There he is. Each week, Tom and I get together to chat about how our days have been going, and together we work through our thoughts on what's been going on in pop culture that week. I'll start this week with the same question I've asked every single week for 12 weeks now. Tom, how's that day? Ooh, I wonder if these, if you people listening can hear that plane flying overhead right as you passed the mic off to me. I hate those planes. Could, yeah, you hear them in my recording a lot, right? Yep, every week. I live right next to Bob Hope Airport, so it's going to happen. Sorry, man. I'm like right on the landing pattern. It's nice to come visit you and not have to travel far from the airport. Yeah, and that airport's one of the best. It's so quiet and easy. I was a w- it's a weird airport, man. Like I don't I don't know how to feel when I'm there cuz like so much of it's like outside. Yeah, it's, it's I mean pretty I think every runway is outside. You walk out onto the I mean every yeah. uh, gate is outside like you walk outside the building and walk yeah, across yeah, the runway. Yeah, yeah, all the gates. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was just it's a lot more outside than a lot of other airports. I feel like I've been to a lot of airports and that one's oh just I felt strange when I was there and I was I mean, it's like that thing. I was like, "Oh, California does feel different." Yeah, well, LAX obviously isn't like this. Well, for those who don't know, I'm talking about Burbank Airport in Burbank, California, also known as Bob Hope Airport. It's a much smaller airport than LAX, which is southwestern LA. I'm in the northeastern part of LA County, so it's a good option. It doesn't have nearly as many options and times, but it'll get you where you need to go. And I love it. I fly it whenever I can. And it's actually the rumor or the myth is that it's a lot more expensive than LAX because it's more of a boutique airline. Airport, it's not the case. You just have to uh, plan ahead, and you're good to go. But I can uh, fly direct to JFK in New York, which is great. Nice. And I believe this fall, JetBlue is beginning a Bob Hope to Boston direct flight, which is where my family lives, and that makes me very happy. But, Phil, that's not what we were talking about. You were asking me, how's that day? And the answer is good. It is uh, Wednesday. I uh, work today. We are officially wrapped on the final mix of Mamma Mia. Here we go again. So we are now in the uh, deliverables portion. So it works a lot quieter and easier so for me. It went It went again. How did it go? It went, baby. Um, it was a great crew. They were all super, super nice. I had worked with the mixer before, a guy by the name of Mike Minkler. Um, he mixed the circle at our offices last year. The director, Ole, is fantastic guy. Really nice, sweet man. Um, and I, I'm sure I mentioned it, but Gary Getzman, the producer, who's uh, Tom Hanks' producing partner, he's been up a bunch. He loves coming up to our office, which is great. So had a great time. Um, a couple of them are still hanging around until the end of this week. And then we move on to Eli Roth and the house with a clock in its walls next week, which will be a lot of fun. I'm excited to, because at this job, even though I don't do any of the technical stuff, but I... You know, it's a small kind of intimate environment, so I get to spend some time with the directors and stuff like that. And I'm very excited to nerd out with Eli Roth over horror films. I feel like he's going to give me so many recommendations of horror movies that I've never even heard of, and I'm pretty pumped for that. Yeah, I, man, like I'm excited. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for you. I just like <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I have such mixed feelings about his filmography, though. Yeah, but that's. That's I know, no, person, no, I know, you know, I know. That's not the person. Like I'm saying, I would be excited to meet him. I'm sure he's the ni- nicest person in the world. I just like, 
you know, we, we talked about Hostel in the last episode, actually, and uh, Cabin in the Woods is just a movie that, like, I just do not understand. Whoa, 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 just, whoa. Cabin, you're talking about Cabin Fever. Oh, no, I'm sorry, sorry, yeah, Cabin, Cabin Fever, not Cabin in the Woods. Cabin Fever is just a movie that has baffled me since high school. But, you know, like, I, I feel like I like everything Eli Roth is trying for. I just don't like, you know, like, when I hear him talk about his movies, I'm like, yeah, I like I like all that, like, in theory. And it's just like in some in the execution, it's never been my favorite. But that said, I'm always kind of rooting for the guy. I hope I like the next thing. Uh, I hope the movie's awesome. Like it's, it's, I like the title. That's a really fucking cool title. Yeah, based off a '70s novel. Oh yeah. See, I don't know anything about it. Like I keep, I've, I know you mentioned it to me like a little while ago, and I think that was the first time I'd heard of it at all. And now that you're saying it again, it's reminding me that it exists. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a really cool title. But what's it about? So the house, with, yeah, the house with the clock in its walls is a novel, or it was originally a novel written by John Belairs in the seventies, I believe. And the interesting, it, it is, it's a family horror film, so it's PG rated horror, which for Eli Roth is insane. I'm very curious. Yeah, to see. so like that's that really interests me. That, yeah, I think so, that could be cool. Um, the logline, basically, and I'm reading it off of IMDb: A young orphan named Louis Barnevelt aids his magical uncle in locating a clock with the power to bring about the end of the world. So it's got kind of a Lemony Snicket vibe to it. It stars Jack Black and Kate Blanchett, so definitely I, I assume they're going off of uh, Jack Black's Goosebumps success and trying to ride that wave a little bit, which is smart. I think the, I thought the Goosebumps adaptation was very successful. I liked it a lot, too. Yeah, not only commercially, but I thought it was a very enjoyable film. Um, it also has Kyle motherfucking mclaughlin so yeah um uh, i'm I'm pumped for it man the um they're starting to promote it i'm starting to see it in the poster and movie theaters a lot i think it's due for late september something like that uh fall release it's amblin obviously spielberg's company so they do kids fantasy stuff really well uh but speaking of eli roth so you mentioned Cabin Fever. We talked about the two hostels briefly. He obviously had the one of the trailers in Grindhouse, the Thanksgiving trailer. That's And that's my favorite trailer in that, actually. Yeah, it's, it's good. But then in terms of feature films, he had Death Wish, the Death Wish remake this year, which I did not see. And the other two, I, yeah, I the other two he had, which came out around the same time, because one was the later few years, were Knock Knock and The Green Inferno. Did you see either of those? No, actually, I didn't. Uh, like, not... I feel like I tried really hard. I was going to see Green Inferno in theaters, and it just didn't happen. And my friend has a copy of it that I've picked up and scanned multiple times. Knock Knock I was really interested in. I just like feel like I haven't... I, I meant to watch it on streaming at some point, and I just haven't seen it available anywhere. I'm sure... I hope maybe it is. I'll check it out. But yeah, those are two I never watched. I, you know, like I said, I've had... You know, I've struggled with him throughout his career um, as a director, but he hasn't even directed that much. It's mostly just been Cabin well, Fever. Gonna, well, that's why yeah, I like, asked. That's why I asked because you talk about like I, I'm into everything he's trying to do. So basically, you're talking about hostile. Basically, and Cabin yeah. Fever, well, and you know, <laughs> which are 15 years. Yeah, old. and then he, he did stop for a really long time. Like I know he was acting a bit, yeah. um, but he did definitely stop for a good while. And it's interesting that he's come back. So yeah, I'm, I should I'll, I should watch them. I know that Green Inferno was. You know, very different from Knock Knock. Knock Knock's more of like a small home invasion thriller. Yeah, it is. It's it's definitely. I would say it's Eli Roth at his, I, the only one of those features that we mentioned that I personally haven't seen is the Death Wish remake. I'll probably catch it when it streams later this year if it isn't already. But um, Knock Knock is his latest prior to that, and I would say it's definitely his most restrained 
genre piece. It's, um, you know, it's basically Keanu Reeves and two young girls in a house. So it's, it's much smaller in scale. It doesn't rely on very graphic violence or torture aspects like the hostile movies or cabin fever, which is, you know, just kind of like a gross out evil dead type flick. Um, green inferno is interesting. I, I feel like I like it more than most people who saw it because it was reviled. People hate that fucking I never movie. saw it, yeah. And, I mean, not like the Italian cannibal sub-horror genre really needed a revival. You know, those movies are pretty um, pretty awful. Like, you, the, the most famous one is obviously Cannibal Holocaust, which has really incredibly realistic depictions of violence and... I think it's a very interesting movie and well-made in its own way, but it also has legit animal mutilation and torture on screen, which, fuck that, I don't need to see any of that. And a lot of those Italian cannibal movies from the 70s and early 80s have that shit, and I don't know, that's, that's just one genre that of the horror world that never really spoke to me. That said, though, Green Inferno is not great, but I've, I found it watchable and like kind of kind of entertaining, actually, in its own way. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm excited for this one, man. The the stills look really cool. It's definitely big budget. Jack Black, Cate Blanchett are great. Kyle MacLachlan's great. Um, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm genuinely excited to see what he does with a kids' film. S- see him like stretch his legs as a filmmaker. You know. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. I'll I'll see I'll see it. I'll see it. But his crowning achievement is obviously still Bear Jew. Yeah, yeah, that's what you know. That's what I know him best for. So, like, when you say Eli Roth, that's who I picture. Yeah, of course, hanging out with Lieutenant Aldo Ryan. Yeah. So, Phil, how's your day? How's that day, Phil? I'm fucking tired, man. I'll be honest. I was yawning before we started. I was, I was kicking around. I was kind of like going through my mental list of things I have to do this week. I have it's finals week, so I have a test to do tomorrow. I have, uh, you know, some essays to write, some things to read, some things to do for work. Got some movie stuff to catch up on. We're, you know, like trying to get do a lot of that stuff right now. Uh, you know, it's just just been busy. Just very busy. But, but you know, life's good. I've been uh, watching some, you know, I went to see some movies. So we'll talk about those movies later. Uh, so I've seen some good stuff lately. I've been, you know, there's been some trailers. Have you seen all the trailers that have been coming out lately? There's been a shit ton of them. I know you, you hit me. Which ones are you talking like, about? Like uh, uh, Widows, the trailer for that, the Steve McQueen one came out. Didn't see there it. Were, there was a couple. There was a bunch of them. I mean, the Halloween trailer dropped. Yeah, did you see that? Yeah, what did you think of the Halloween trailer? Did you see that? Didn't watch it. You didn't watch it? Oh, it's it's no. interesting. I, it's, it's hard. It's, I really want to. I mean, I'm excited for that movie. I'll say that now. But I uh, I don't know. I, it's going to come out in October when it comes out. I'm going to see it, the trailer in theaters, I'm sure, several times in the coming months. I'll, I'll hold off. Did you see the tra- Did you see the trailer for the Nun? Uh, I I saw part of it like on Instagram or something. Actually, today at work when I was just scrolling through my phone, the the thing I liked about it more than what I saw from the trailer was I, oh no, I saw it because James Wan tweeted about it, and he said yeah, this is us paying homage to Hammer Horror and films of that era, and that interested me. I'm like, okay, if you try to capture that vibe. Which means you're going to make kind of a slow drama, almost, more than a horror movie. I'm like, I could be down for that. But then the trailer looked yeah. more just like another jump, jump scary horror movie. horror movie, you know. But obviously I'm going to see it. The First Man trailer came out, the new Ryan Gosling, uh, uh, Damien Chazelle. I, I didn't see the trailer, but I know about it. Actually, the, a lot of the Mamma Mia crew are going to mix that one shortly. So 
Yeah, that's oh, very nice, very nice. Um, Dumbo, that dropped today. I heard about it, didn't watch it. Yeah, don't be, we'll see, we'll see about that one, man. Like, that Dumbo, as other people have pointed out, Dumbo is like 65 minutes long. There's not much Isn't to Dumbo. Short? So, yeah, man, Dumbo's really short. He basically, like, is abused for, like, a, for an <laughs> hour, and then he gets, like, super, super fucking drunk. And then he wakes up and realizes he can fly, and I, that's and I think that's the end of the movie. Like that's what I remember. So is Dumbo just like a metaphor for a bender going on a bender? Yeah, I think yeah. Dumbo's fucking weird, <laughs> and I've, so of course they got like Tim Burton to direct it, and I don't even I don't. Are, am I done with Tim Burton? Are you done? I, I I know you're not done with him, but like, and I'm never like done. Yeah, done, yeah I can never but, like, pull I feel like because he will. If he doesn't. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> yeah, if, uh, <laughs> we were both thinking it. Yeah. If um, if he does, if he goes back to like stop motion or something, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be there opening night. Love you know? Frank and Weenie. That was 2012. Yeah, Frank and Weenie was great. That was only six years ago. So apparently he's he's, been... he's still got it in him. That's what she said. Beetlejuice two is apparently what's been announced next. Yeah. Um. You know, I'll, I'll hold off. I'm, I'm not. I don't know, man. You know me. I'm not a hater. Like when, I, when they announce these projects, I very rarely just go, "Oh, fuck that!" Like I don't, I don't know. I, I'm willing to remain optimistic until I'm proven otherwise. You're, are you, so you're good with these like live action Disney remakes of everything? Yeah. What the fuck do I care? I mean, I didn't like, I didn't really care for Beauty and the Beast, but it didn't tarnish I, the original or anything. No, it, sure. Like know? I guess I don't care, but I guess I also don't like them. So <laughs> that's the other problem. Is there's, yeah, not, I mean, there's not been one of them I've liked, so I guess it's really been like, man, these. I wish they do a good I version of this. C- I thought Cinderella was solid. I, I thought that one was pretty good. What else came out? There's a, there's a bunch of ones. Bumblebee. Oh, I did watch a trailer, and I loved it. What's the that? Suspiria remake. Oh, yeah, yeah, that dropped a trailer. Holy the, shit. Didn't I thought it was interesting. It was very colorful, but not. it was like very uh, desaturated color, not like yeah, the bright, somehow, vivid colors. Yeah. It somehow managed, in my opinion, to capture the spirit of Suspiria without looking like it was just trying to mimic what Suspiria was doing. And that's obviously a lot of the, it, a lot of it has to do with the editing of the trailer, the way they were cutting images with music, and not that concerned about explaining the story. You know, whatever. I'm sure the story is going to be a lot more co- coherent than the original Argento movie is, but it seemed like they were very focused on. <laughs> Capturing Dude, the mood and what the, tone. the fuck and, happens? But the, the, vis- yeah, the visual palette, the visual palette is totally different, man. It's like it's very colorful and exciting, but not in the way of Argento's, which is full of really bright hues. You know? Yeah, I, I dug that. What was your question? What the fuck happens in Suspiria? Like, can you tell me? You know, like plot wise. Yeah, ballerina. Sure. Uh, I mean, I mean, like, an, obviously, I, you can give me the bare bones plot, but I mean, like. At a certain point, like I think the movie and a lot of Argento's movies just become nonsense. Suspiria is a lot more coherent than Inferno. You know, I say I say that in a more I say that in a loving way. I don't necessarily yeah. I'm not picking on the guy. I'm saying like I always kind of laugh. I'm like, what are you? You're just a crazy man, Argento. Like you just had no interest in like scripts at all. Yeah. Well, if you think he's crazy, try getting into Lucio Fulci. Jesus Christ. Eh, I'm probably not. There, there are some you should watch. Sure. Yeah, I'm not against them as like a whole genre. I just like. You know, I feel like it's not my thing necessarily. There's not a whole yeah. lot that I'm gonna like love out well, of it. Well, you you like other Argentos beyond Suspiria, right? Yeah, yeah, I liked other ones like uh, you know, like I, what is it, Deep Red or whatever? Um, Deep Red, yeah, that's that's probably his most renowned beyond Suspiria. Actually, not one of my favorites of his though. 
Uh, also very confusing. Though. I remember watching it with my friend. Yeah, we were movies are confusing. We were we got we were uh, hanging out, and he was like, "I dare you." to follow this movie and i said okay like throw it in he's like halfway through you're just gonna be like oh wait i don't know what's going on and i was like i was like no way okay so like we're watching it and then he was right at some point during a scene i just looked at him i was like i have no idea what's going on in this movie and he's like exactly i've watched it and he was like this is like my sixth time watching it and he still didn't know yeah honestly like those italian horror filmmakers of the 60s through the 80s when they were doing all like Suspiria and all these old Gallo films, Giallo films that Fulci did and Argento did and many others, um, they weren't really, not only were they not that concerned with plot, but they were international pictures. So they would cast an American with an Italian dude with a German lady and they all wouldn't speak the same language and they'd, they'd be like, don't worry, we're just dubbing it over in English anyway. <laughs> Uh, to try to release it in American theaters. To say that they would just rewrite a lot of the movie as they shot would almost be giving them too much credit. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, it's it's it really does feel in a lot of instances like they're like, oh, we need to have this type of scene in this movie, so let's just do it now because we have the people we need here now. We have a cool set. Let's just do... Now we're going to do the sex scene, you know? Yeah. And there are, there are a few shining examples of that genre that really, like transcend a lot of the garbage that you can see and i say that as a big fan of giallo films I've, I've seen a lot of them but like one of the best ever in my opinion actually two of the best ever are fulci films lucio fulci films lizard in a woman's skin and don't torture a duckling those are two of the great italian horror movies that i would put maybe not quite on par with suspiria because that's an all-time favorite but you know the very next level down so yeah I... you know he's got his gems but yeah the suspiria remake is um, Luca Guadagnino, the guy who just directed Call Me By Your Name. It's crazy to me that he's following that Oscar (laughs) movie up with an Italian nonsense horror remake. Um, Who's in it? I know, obviously, we have Tilda Swinton. We have Dakota Johnson. Dakota Johnson. Those are the big ones. um... Chloe Grace Moretz is in it. But I I thought it looked great, man. For someone who holds this period near and dear to my heart, it, I wasn't really precious about it either. Like, go ahead and try to remake that insane movie. Good luck. But that trailer blew me away. I, I got super excited for it. Yeah, like for me, I'm I'm okay with with it. Like, I was okay suddenly with the Blade Runner sequel when you find out. I was like, oh, it's Denis Villeneuve. That's more interesting to me than if if it had been Ridley Scott. I think if if it had a had it been Ridley Scott, I would have been much more skeptical about it. And I think like him directing Suspiria compared to like I don't know like Toby Hooper or someone like that or not Toby well, Hooper. Well, Toby like, Hooper's dead. Yeah, I not Toby Hooper. Uh I was I'm thinking I was going to say the guy who directed the Poltergeist remake, but I can't remember who that guy's name oh, is. So yeah, yeah. um like whoever that guy who directed the Poltergeist remake is like somebody like that who's just kind of like you know, for me, doesn't have a, a voice that stood out or has a perspective that I'm interested in. So at least I feel like Suspiria is going to have a take. You know, there's going to be some something interesting about it. So I don't, and like you, I'm not very precious about the original at this point. Yeah, it's not a Hollywood, uh, not a Hollywood workman doing it. It's someone with a. It's it's going to be part of like an auteur's filmography. Yeah, and and like you said, it's also the script is nonsense. So it's not like it's not like some perfect screenplay that they're going to be fucking with or something like that. There's plenty of room to like do something new with that world. Yeah, no, it, it but it it legit became it went from a curiosity to one of my more anticipated movies for the rest of the year. Um, yeah, I've been watching like other shit like 
I'm going to go see First Reformed this weekend. I know you saw that already, but like I've been watching like Paul Schrader shit, like Mishima Life in Four Chapters and stuff like that. Um, so like that's how I've been spending my evenings. So like not, usually I don't spend it diving into the deep gallows of Italian horror. I spend it in the art house crowd being a snob. Yeah, we're both snobs in our own ways. In our own little ways. Come on, Peter. There's your suit. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. It's grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you were a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. All right, so we've we so we've already been talking about horror, so we might as well just get into it, you know, because we already this week we're going to be talking about the horror film that everyone has been talking about. I don't know, uh, I didn't even see the box office. Where did it land? Did it open at number one? No, uh, Ocean's Eight. Oh yeah, that makes made sense. Forty something, but uh, it outperformed expectations. I think it was you know not accounting for inflation and. Putting aside theater counts, it was... It did 17 just, million, yeah. Yeah, in terms of pure number, it was A24's biggest weekend release ever. Yeah, and I think, like, previously, Lady Bird was their all-time grosser, and that was only around, like, 25 or 30 million. So I think this one has a good chance of becoming their biggest hit yet. It's gotten rave reviews from critics ever since it premiered uh, South by Southwest, I believe, or Sundance. It premiered at Sundance, and... Ever since then, it's been, you know, anticipation. I've heard about it, and everyone's just been saying, just you get ready for Hereditary. And I kind of avoided the trailers. I didn't know much about the plot going in. I had just seen a few images and knew that it had been getting rave reviews. I saw it. You saw it. You're the horror aficionado. You're my main man. Tell me what you thought about Hereditary. My uh, A good friend of mine works in distribution, and he saw... I, I believe at Sundance, or did it premiere at Sundance? I thought it maybe came out even earlier, like Fantastic Fest last year or something. Maybe not. But anyway, a friend of mine had seen this months ago and said, uh, you're going to love this movie, Tom. And then the hype blew up. It's one of the best-reviewed films of the year, horror or otherwise. So I try not to get my expectations too high. My expectations were super high for this movie, even though I, I was really trying hard not for it to be. It did premiere at Sundance. My apologies. I saw it after you. I just saw it two nights ago now after a super long day of work when I was exhausted. My friends bought tickets ahead of me. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. I raced to the theater, make it during previews. They're in the very back row, which pissed me off. Ugh. And then I'm watching the movie, and this fucking mouth breather is sitting right next to me. He's louder than the movie. The movie, especially in the first hour, is super quiet. And this guy breathing was louder than the movie. So I actually left my friends and moved up to the second row on the aisle. So I'm like, dude, I just can't deal with it. Yeah. And despite all of those issues, I was absolutely riveted. This movie is a flat-out fucking masterpiece, in my opinion. Really? Stone Cold Masterpiece, yes. Oh, I didn't think you were going to say that. Why is that? 
I your your uh, brief tech. We haven't really discussed it yet. Yeah, via that text. Was, uh, I incepted you, bitch. I was oh, you to, tricked me. I was me? trying to downplay it. You tricked me. Oh, you tricked me. You son I of a bitch. You. I was I like, did. I was I kind of you. looking forward to a fight. God damn it. Um, no, I was this like, movie is absolutely brilliant. Okay, God damn it. I was like, here I was. I was like, oh, like at the very least, I was like thinking like oh okay so he's sitting next to his fucking mouth breather he's got to move around he's tired from work like maybe he just needs to give it another go like maybe he just wasn't in the right place for it whatever but no here you go tricking me all right all right tell me why it's a masterpiece and why i fucking agree with you okay well to start because there's a lot i can talk about this movie and i don't want the the podcast to go over two hours long for one thing i love the pace the the opening shot yeah, I whatever. This is an, it's the opening shot of the movie. Spoiler it, spoilers for Hereditary. This is a spoiler podcast. If you're listening yeah, to we this, we will be talking. We're going to be talking about the whole movie. Uh, yeah, I, I actually, you know, the side note. I've been talking. I've been thinking like we should put like a bump like ahead of the every episode. Like, hey, this is a spoiler podcast. Just be warned. And then like music start. I don't know something to talk about. But we, we say it, it. We usually make sure to say it before we talk about. Movies. Okay. Well, that's our warning. Spoilers for Hereditary going forward. We're spoiling the yeah, whole movie. Don't- don't listen Honestly, to it's a movie I did not watch. I actively avoided the trailer whenever possible and tried not to read about it because of the excitement and good reviews. Go in as cold as you can in general, but especially for a movie like this, which is really great and has a lot of interesting plot points. So if just don't listen to us right now if you haven't seen Hereditary yet. So the movie is two hours and seven minutes long, which is super long for a horror movie. Horror movies are normally not that long. They haven't been since the heyday of 60s and 70s when the art house and mainstream kind of crossed over in America, right? And you had shit like The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, The Omen, movies like that, which were two hours long, and they focused a lot more The Exorcist on... is two hours and two minutes, so... Yeah. Rosemary's Baby is like 2.20 or I'm something? Look, I'm it's looking, long. I'm looking. Rosemary's Baby is two hours and 17 minutes. Okay. And The Omen, I'm going to guess, is an hour 58. Can the you look om- that one The up? Omen is an one fifty one. Okay, so that one's a little shorter. But this is, I believe, two hours, seven minutes, at least according to IMDb. So it's rare to get a movie like that, a horror movie like that. And the reason why those movies were longer, the reason why this movie's longer, is it plays like a drama, and the horror evolves from that. It is not a horror movie first, in my opinion. It is a a dramatic film first. I know there's some people who have pushed back on the director, because that's what he's been saying. He's like, look, this was a family drama that that turns into a nightmare, and I know a lot of people are like, ugh, I hate directors who say that this isn't really a horror movie. Like, they think they're better than horror films or no, something No, I don't like think that. that's what... I mean, I haven't heard that, but I can't imagine that's what he's saying because I agree with him completely, and that's purely just from my experience watching the movie. But that does not diminish the fact that it's, it is a horror movie, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. If The Omen's a horror movie, if The Exorcist is a horror movie, this is a horror movie, in my opinion. Yeah, it so, takes a while to get to, like, the pure horror, but there's horror sprinkled throughout, regardless. Yeah, and I think the problem when people, because I agree with that theory, when people, like, when Get Out started to get nominated for Oscars and people were trying to downplay that it was a horror and say, oh, it's more of a social thriller. No, fuck you. Get Out's a horror movie. Don't downplay it because you think horror is lesser than, you know? Like, there are some things that aren't horror movies just because they're not horror movies. But horror movies aren't just about getting scared all the time and having things jump out at you. Horror is also about building dread. It's about tragedy. It's about having to deal with stuff that is otherworldly and nightmarish. And this movie's full of that, even before it gets to the really scary stuff, you know? it's Yeah, horror is also, I think, one of the greatest genres in terms of 
um, you being used for metaphor. Absolutely. And, yeah, yeah. Horror, like it just lends itself to that. So like this is definitely a film that I think like although filled with horror imagery, those those images also lend themselves to like wild interpretations. And I will say, going home, I live alone. Going home after Hereditary, I very rarely get spooked watching horror movies anymore just because I love the genre so much and I watch so many of them. That movie, Hereditary, I was thinking about moments that I'm sure we'll get to like in the dark in my bedroom alone at night and definitely was getting a little creeped out in the best way. Like I was really enjoying that I was getting spooked. You were checking your corners? Yeah, checking the corners of the ceiling and shit. I mean, for sure, really. Like just just the fact that it was in my head made me want to look. And I remember having that moment at like one in the morning in bed and thinking, ooh, this is awesome. Like I really enjoy that I'm having this thought. So anyway... Go ahead. I was going to say, there's a great shot where he's asleep in his, or he's scared in his bedroom, and he, like, looks, and the camera pans over to, like, a chair with a, his jacket slung over it or yeah. something, and, he, and it, like, seems like it's something. Like, even, even like, you're looking at it, and it seems like something spooky at first. And, like, I just love that feeling, because I've definitely had that, like, in my room at night, where you just see, you see something out of the corner of your eye, you're like, what the fuck? And, yeah, I have a sweatshirt that hangs off a hook on the inside of my bedroom door. And I see it in the dark a lot, and I know what it is now, so it doesn't freak me out. But I, I see it, and it definitely looks like a like a hunched over figure a lot of times. And I remember noticing that on Monday night, and immediately made me think of Hereditary, and just thinking that is awesome. I was so ten. Movie, oh, okay. <laughs> I keep, sorry, I keep wanting to start because I feel like we're getting sidetracked. I know. Um, I, was, I know. Okay, really, really quick, really, really quick. I'm sorry. It's 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 horror related. Uh, yes. The first time I ever saw The Shining, I was 11 years old, and I watched it in the basement of my mom's house, and my brother was really into like f- the uh, Air Force at the time, so he had a flight suit, and he had this flight suit that was hanging from like a pole or like a pillar that was in the basement. And so like when I was watching The Shining for the first time, it was a dark, stormy night. It was like the perfect time to watch that movie. And I was scared, though, because the lights were out, and I when I turned around, it looked like there was just a figure, uh, like a, a human figure standing above me the entire movie like and i got up and like turned the lights on and i saw that like it was his flight suit just hanging there i was like okay okay but then i turned the lights back off and i go back to watching the movie and it still just like freaked me out i had to like take it down because i just couldn't deal with that like shadow above me just so yeah yeah. i i sympathize with that feeling totally and hereditary plays on those moments like one of the earlier you know fright moments in the movie is when she you sees see, her mom. Yeah, you see yeah. a ghost of an old lady who died, and she has to turn the light on to make sure she's not actually there. And so this movie opens up. The opening shot is this very slow push in with the camera to a dollhouse, and the dollhouse takes shape and actually becomes the set we are starting off the movie in, which is a teenage boy's bedroom. And we've been informed, yeah. And we've been informed by a scrawl at the beginning of the movie that uh, the mother of the family, the grandmother of this family, has just died. Yeah, you have a husband and wife, a teenage son, and probably like a ten, eleven year old daughter. Yeah. And the the mother's mom, grandma, has passed away at around seventy four. So they're getting ready to go to her wake, and this this camera shot is very slow and patient, and it's not full of creepy noises or anything like that. And it immediately just sets the tone. It says, this is what the movie is going to be. It's going to be this patient story that I'm going to try to tell you. And I'm going to just put you a little off kilter because 
it has this shining like quality where you dip into the maze and the shining and suddenly Danny and his mom are walking around in the maze, right? It plays with your perspective. Yeah. And the Tony Collette, the mother's character builds these miniatures. That's what she is as an artist. And the movie plays off of that vibe about what is and isn't real constantly throughout the movie. I mean, we see it nonstop. There's a great shot after this tragic moment happens, you know, 30 or 40 minutes in where we get an establishing shot of the house and it's pitch black outside and suddenly it turns into day. Yeah, there's some great transitions in the movie. The transition literally makes you think like a light has switched on. Yeah. As opposed to some type of fade or a sudden jarring cut from day to night as as a passage of time. It feels artificial in that way. Yeah. So the movie's setting you up from from moment one that it's gonna be this type of movie. It's not gonna be about jump scares or trying to freak you out with additive noises or video visual effects or anything like that it's going to focus on this story and these characters and that's what it does for like i don't know what was 40 minutes probably yeah there's really not a whole lot of horror besides the, what there is like the dead grandmother's ghost it's all about building this sense of unease and dread in this family house yeah like the little girl is looking around at the funeral parlor and there's a man smiling at her in the corner there's like yeah, little disturbing kind of like grace notes like that sprinkled throughout that aren't necessarily like gore or horror driven, but you're just like, why the fuck is this guy staring at her? You no, know, it's just, it's yeah. creating unease for you. Yeah, yeah. Which I yeah. think great horror films do. They create this sense of unease. I'm going to be talking probably a lot about Rosemary's Baby for reasons that will become much more obvious as we get into the movie. But, but yeah, the I end think, of the movie is definitely Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. yeah, but tonally as well, I think it borrows a lot from that movie in the way that it slowly builds dread and paranoia, particularly like Mia Farrow and Rosemary's Baby for Tony Collette's character in Hereditary. This just creeping unease of disorientation and the walls around you kind of dissembling and turning into nonsense in a weird way that you're you're having a very hard time grappling with. The reason why all of this creeping dread and uncertainty works is because he takes the time to really get us familiar with the family and the characters. And once we have that world established in the movie, he lets shit go off the rails in an insane, completely satisfying way as a genre fan. So a big reason why I liked it in the macro sense is that it delivers the best of both worlds. It's, it's a great family tragedy drama and it's a great horror movie. It's both of those things. On a much more specific level, I think it's brilliantly written, brilliantly acted, brilliantly shot. Like they're there, I I'm struggling to find fault in this movie. But before I just ramble with superlatives over and over again, I want to hear a little bit about what you thought about Hereditary. I also like I I kind of already said I agree with you. That I think this film is amazing. I think it's fantastic. I think it's I was thinking about this year so far. We're six months into the year. And we've had a really amazing horror film, a really amazing children's movie, a really amazing sci-fi movie, a really amazing superhero movie. Um, I think with uh, stuff like You Were Never Really Here, we've had an amazing art house stuff. Like, I think we've had some really great releases this year so far. Like, it just feels like I walked out of this one with the same feeling that I walked out of, like, The Witch with, where it's just like, oh, that's an all-timer. Like, you can kind of, like, feel like, oh, that's going to be going on lists like best of horror lists for the rest of my life. 
and it kind of it just feels that way it has so much weight to it and so much ambition and even though this guy is a first time director the confidence that he ha- he has with the camera in terms of holding frames i've seen the film twice now i wa- i watched the film a second time and the second time through i really admired his minimal cutting and just how you know restricted he was and how tasteful he was with things and he really did there's just whole stretches of this movie that are profoundly sad and and he just kind of really makes you wallow in that and i think the the reason i saw it twice is because i think that we're going to talk a little bit about this later but i just didn't think i had to go see this movie a second time because the first time i saw this movie was an absolutely awful experience it was maybe the worst film going experience of my life it was it was horrendous so Opening night, packed house. My plan was initially to go immediately after work. Like I was like, all right, I'm gonna go like early afternoon. But they didn't have like a good time. It was just kind of I was like, ah, that's the bad time. Like it's either there or like I need to go home and let my dog out because if I don't do that, he'll be like in his thing for way too long, and that like wouldn't be fair to him. So it just like didn't work out. So I eventually ended up like fine. I have the movie pass, which we will also talk about later. But since I have the movie pass, I'm like, whatever. It's a Friday night. I'll pay, you know, the stupid full price. I'll go see with the full the opening night crowd, which and it's often fun to see a scary movie with an opening night like crowd. Some of my favorite movie going experiences have been that. Like I remember, I very clearly remember the first Paranormal Activity movie was a great, great film going experience because of how quiet the film was and how hushed that audience was, and you could like feel them slowly realizing things that were in the corner of the screen and like you could hear the whispering and the giggling and that was great and there was a lot of that here too like in terms of audiences slowly seeing something revealed to them and like being so uncomfortable that they start giggling i I had that exact same experience with hereditary both times i saw it um but the first time i saw it was friday night and it just fucking sucked man like i sat down next to it reminded me of uh, our our trip to go see insidious uh, the infamous Insidious screening that we went to, which yeah. was, I think, probably up to this, the worst thing I'd ever seen in terms of like film going experience. That was really bad, but it was also like so memorable, and we were enjoying Insidious so much that we couldn't like really leave. And also, we had snuck into the movie, so we really couldn't go and complain to the management either. Yeah, <laughs> that was <laughs> we had paid. We we do That's you remember? Do you remember what we saw it with? Source code. Source code, baby. Yes, yeah, so, so we saw Source Code Insidious, and up until this point, Sor- uh, Insidious was the worst film-going experience because it was just, it was the same thing. There was talking throughout, There it was multiple groups throughout the theater. It wasn't just, like, one group, but I had... not to- hushed conversations or reacting to the movie, just straight up having, converse- like, loud conversations like they were in a crowded bar on a Friday night. Yeah, and you're just like, shut the fuck up. So, yeah, which I think we said to a group of young girls. <laughs> yeah, they were the girls behind us in Insidious were shrieking, like almost literally screaming, screaming at the top of their lungs to a point that you're like, "All right, you girls need to calm down. Like nothing is this scary. Like it is a movie. I get a, a quick, a quick shriek, a yelp, uh, you know, uh, any kind of noise, but like this extended ten second murder scream needs to stop." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I see that in movies a lot when people. You know, if they like stumble upon a dead body and just scream for eight seconds, and I always used to think that's that's not how you would react to something like that. Like you would maybe let out a scream, or you would gasp, or you would react, but you wouldn't sustain it like that. Like that just doesn't feel genuine. Until we saw that insidious screaming, and yeah. I thought, okay, some people just respond to things that way. All right, 
So, all right. So I'm sitting in through Insidious, and like early in the movie, uh, the gir- the group next to me, the guy like rips a fart, like a vibrating fart that I hear very clearly. <laughs> and I just rolled my eyes. I was like, this motherfucker is going to be farting. I forget what scene it was exactly, but it was pretty early in the movie. Like shit was getting serious already. And I was like, you know, really into the movie. And you start like hearing that and like they were giggling. And I think the giggling took up like 10 more minutes because like it was one of those like cycle things where like one friend started giggling and then the other couldn't stop. And then that like made the others start giggling more. And then like they catch their breath and then another one would start giggling again. And you'd be like, oh, my God, you guys, it's it's a fart. It's a fart. We, we all fucking fart. I, I farted 20 fucking times already today, and I did but not. But the movie is so quiet that it, I can see something I get, like that yeah, happening here's where the thing. it's almost like you're in church. Yeah, you know? I get it. Here's the thing. At that point, I was willing to forgive it. I was like, look, if I was a young guy in my 20s and one of my friends farted like that, whatever, I could see myself laughing. Whatever. I'm laughing right now. Yeah, I like whatever, whatever. I could see myself laughing. It's not the end of the world. Whatever. But then this guy just, like, continued to talk, like, like talking pretty loudly the farter the farter the farter continued to talk and the guy next to him uh pulled out a cell phone at one point and they just kept talking and i like turned to him and it's one of those things where like i was watching the movie really enjoying it but you're also like having that side debate in your head of like how much longer am i gonna let this guy talk before i say something taking you out of it like how yeah how do i get up and go tell the management fuck i don't want to miss anything because that means i like have to get up for 10 minutes and like maybe it causes a whole commotion or something like that like god damn it like i just want to watch this movie maybe he'll shut up after this and i'll get lucky and, you know, like, you're just doing that whole debate, and I'm not really, like, watching the movie. So, like, the first time I watched the movie on Friday night, although I was thoroughly immersed and enjoying it, like, throughout the entire movie, that was happening. Well, these guys were next to me, and other people were in the back of the theater uh, who were talking, and I was just like, God, this whole audience sucks. It was, a, it was a really shitty screening, and, like, really took me out of the movie constantly, and especially the final, like, 20 minutes of the movie where shit got nuts. It got ridiculous in terms of people just gave up. Like, they were just openly talking and or mocking the movie or laughing. I heard so many people on my way out of the theater being like, that was the worst fucking movie I've ever seen. That was the stupidest fucking thing I've ever seen. I heard that from, like, multiple people. And the, uh, the other thing that was happening during the movie is... For those of you who've seen the movie, they'll know that the young girl in the movie before, you, you know, when she's seen throughout the movie, she her, who plays Charlie, she does this, like, thing, you know, like the clock oh, God, with her yeah. thing. So she's doing that. So every at different points in the movie, you hear that noise. And every time it would come up throughout the movie, multiple people in our audience would start doing it. And I was just like, oh, my God, all of you just need to stop. Like, what is your guys? I just wanted to, like, get up. And like, have yeah, I, I would have, I would have maybe left and just tried another screening. Phil, we've had so you didn't have an experience like that recently, but you've had several bad experiences at theaters recently. But like for di- with, completely different with, reasons. One was for, for projection. Yeah. So was this all at the same movie theater? No, I go. To, I go to several different movie theaters. Like okay. it, it's, it's all a matter of timing, and uh, where, if I'm going straight from work or if I'm down, it's it's all or like if it's the art house one that I go to. There's the one that's right down the street. Uh, because you, and you're you're right though. I mean, Friday night opening night horror and comedies are generally great to to go see. Not not like Oscar drama films, and this movie's much more. Not that you would have known this, but. It's much more of like an Oscar drama film than a straight up horror romp, an audience romp. So, 
Well, and this is I what guess. I wanted to kind of get into is yeah. like I feel like that is why the audience was so disruptive was because yes. they were just flat out not ready for this fucking movie. Yes. Like this is like all right, so after the, here's the IMDb summary. After the family matriarch passes away, a grieving family is haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences and begin to unravel dark secrets. That's very fucking vague. So basically, the family haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences is the main thing is that the uh, youngest child, Charlie, is accidentally beheaded by a pole uh, at, one night when the, by the son who's trying to race her home uh, to get her EpiPen because she's uh, eat, she's allergic to peanuts and she's eating some nuts. So after this accidental death, it sends immediately the mother, Tony Collette, into this deep despair. And from there, she goes to seek the help of uh, a, grief, a grief group where she meets Ann Dowd. And Ann Dowd introduces her to some witchcraft. And that brings in some shit. Now, there's already some shit leading up to that. But that's when shit really gets crazy is when she starts trying to possibly bring Charlie back. And, or at least, like, contact her in some way. Yeah, through a seance. Yeah, so that's basically the plot of the movie. But, like, throughout that movie, especially during that middle section after the child has died, between the child dying and the the kind of seance stuff kind of kicking in in the third act, like, the second act of this movie is a profoundly just sad, sad yeah. drama. Like about It's a, a straight-up tragedy. It's a straight-up tragedy, and it's sad. There's very little... Very little levity. There's a couple moments that I think are intended for laughter, which I do laugh at. Like even during the this horrifying dinner table scene where there's a fight between everyone, she says this line about "I hate that stupid face on your face." You know, there's a couple yeah. like random lines like that that will make you laugh, but that's about it. It's otherwise it's a pretty dark movie and really sad. Although I did want to say that because Tony Collette, for one thing, is amazing. I think. They're going to push her for an Oscar nomination. And totally deserves it. Absolutely. It's the best performance I've seen this year, for sure. And a big reason why, I agree with everything you're saying. However, I think she does. That's a, that line's a great example. She brings a lot more humor into that role than I think a lot of actors would have. And a lot of it is not just in the writing. Like, I'm sure uh, maybe that line was improvised, but I assume it isn't. Yeah. Um, but her delivery in general, when she's getting very flustered, is very funny. Like, intentionally funny. You know, it's not uh, It's not that she's losing the tone. She's walking this very fine line with her exasperation. Once the tragedy of what's happened to Charlie has settled in a little bit. Because, you know, there's that initial five or ten minutes where, I mean, at least I was, with the family just shocked. I did not know that was going to happen. I did not know... Any of that from anything, like I said, I had tried to avoid uh, trailers and reading about the movie. So Charlie getting her head ripped off in the backseat of a car 30 minutes into the movie, like, stunned me. Oh, yeah. I was legit shocked by it. So there's that there's that stunned grieving period. But then after that, really from that dinner scene on to when she starts to get a little, uh, a little into the seance stuff and then a little suspicious of Anne Dowd. She does bring a lot of humor into her insanity. The way she, the like, there's the scene a little later on where Anne Dowd's character uh, brings about a séance in her apartment where Anne Dowd connects with her dead son, or yeah. so she says. And then later on, a few scenes later, Tony Collette's character wants to do the same thing for Charlie in her house with her husband and her son, and she brings them down into the kitchen explains that Charlie was just drawing all this shit in a notebook 
and that she, Charlie's going to move this glass off of a table if they'll all just stand together and hold hands and watch. And the husband, Gabriel Byrne, wants nothing to do with it. The son's getting freaked out. And she's just so flustered, flustered and frustrated with them that they're just not going along with it, that it's this weird mix of like pathetic, really sad desperation that you empathize with her with and just want her to be okay, and genuine annoyance with her family members that I thought was very funny. Like She had all these moments where she was just, what? What? Stop! Like She just gets really mad in a commanding way. Yeah, well, there's moments that I think it is intentionally funny. Like there, After he's banged his face uh, at the desk at school, Gabriel Burns driving him home, and Tony Collette comes running down the driveway, like, screaming, and he just, like, has this face, like, oh, fuck. Yeah, like, he just drives and, right past and, her. Yeah, and the audience just kind of starts laughing because we've already established as well in the movie that her mother had DID, Disassociative Identity Disorder, and that uh, there's a series of uh, traumas and incidents that have run throughout her family, and there's a lot of thematic issues running throughout about the way grief and pain and even diseases are passed down the way that like the, the trappings of family, the way that you can't escape what your, you know, your fate is that your you know, that your family has laid out for you. You know, like there's all this stuff going on in the movie too. Like that is in, that is completely in Zapatico with all the horror, you know, that it's where the horror is coming from as well. And it's, that's another example of an incredibly morbidly, dark funny moment the first time she goes to grief counseling is not for charlie it's to deal with her grandmother her her, mother, i'm sorry yeah her mother passing away and she does this little bit of exposition that we need which clues us into the title of the film for one thing and the fears that the rest of her family is having over her blossoming insanity where she explains the did that her mom had and then she runs off this list of family trauma which is the most fucked up sequence of things. <laughs> like so many. Her awful father starved himself. And she just yeah. rushes through and it. Yeah. It it, it it goes in ten seconds and she just lists it off like, yeah, yeah, that's all the that's all the preamble, whatever. You know? It it comes across that way. When you if you were there in that room, you would have to pause and be like, Holy shit, that's the craziest thing I have ever heard anybody say in this group therapy, and we are all here because we've but seeing it yeah but seeing it a second time what's great about seeing that scene is also hearing lines like she said her brother killed himself and wrote a suicide note that accused his mother of trying to put people inside of him which you know you hear that again the second time through and that has a you're like oh that means a lot more to me this time and so the the movie yes and that's a big that's a big reason why i think this movie is great because the script I have only seen it the first time, and the ending, there's a twist, I would call it, but as soon as it happens, or as soon as it dawns on you that it is happening, everything else that came before it seems so obvious, like all the clues were there. Yeah, watching it the second time, that was what I really, really admired, was I could see, because the first time through, there was moments where I wasn't entirely sure why something was happening, like a scary scene, especially, like, say something with... Uh, the son at high school, like something scary. He might see a scary image or something like that. And I kind of sometimes the first yeah. time through felt like, well, is that just like a random scare scene that was inserted in there for some reason? Like, I don't quite understand why that was there. But the second time through, knowing where the movie was headed, I could see all the breadcrumbs that were spread out throughout the movie. And there's just so much shit that's right. sprinkled in the very first opening moments, in the early scenes that are huge clues leading up to the very ending. The second time through, when you see this movie, you're going to see just how tight this script really is. 
Yeah, and you don't, as obvious as it seems in retrospect, it takes a while for you to realize where they're going. And I think it's twofold. One is the story is really engrossing. So you're not even, you're at least for me, I wasn't necessarily thinking ahead, you know, because like you do with a lot of movies where you expect a twist, like a bad M. Night Shyamalan knockoff or something. You're into the story, so you're not worried about where it's going necessarily. You're just enjoying the ride. He, but he lays out all these clues. B, the ending is so fucking crazy that I think even, especially the movie that preceded it, which has this like tinge of supernatural horror to it throughout, you know, these little um, moments that he sprinkles in. But since you're dealing in such a real world tragedy with this family trauma that's been going on with the death of a daughter, you're not thinking the movie's going to go into the absolutely insane direction that it leads. And speaking of Shyamalan, I think I'm going to like this movie more the second time. It reminds me a lot of something like The Sixth Sense in that way, where you go back and rewatch it knowing where the movie goes, and you see all these clues that are so patiently spread out and thought about, and there's such detail into the writing and to the visual cues that's going on throughout the entire movie that... It's just going to be so rewarding on a real... I mean, I hope it was even better on a second viewing for you. I don't know specifically yeah, if it well, was or not, but besides the, the, the theatrical experience was obviously. much better. There was still some, like, I think some striking similarities in the audience reaction to things. Uh, there was some great moments that, like, I was talking to Shell about, like, there's two real great joys of seeing a movie in a theater. One of them is the visceral surprise and shock of a moment. Like, the first time I saw Charlie's head, you know, get, uh, you know, exploded off of her body by a, a pole in the desert you know you obviously like something like that the first time you see it you know your hand goes over your mouth for 10 minutes and you're in shock you know wondering holy fuck like i can't believe the movie's like following through on this is she coming back is you know like because the movie doesn't show it it's not entirely clear right away like maybe she's gonna and you don't know what kind of movie you're in for yet so i was thinking like oh maybe she's not dead and like that was just some nightmare who knows like who, like but then you're like no she's fucking dead so there, like, there's that kind of shock. And then the second time through, there's the great thing of, like, I know that there's a moment that's going to shock everyone in this fucking audience in, like, 30 seconds. And now I'm going to sit here and enjoy listening to everybody react to it. So, like, so, so that was <laughs> yeah. the one of the better things about the second viewing was, like, the scenes with the great scene with Tony Collette in the corner when she, like, first when the long extended shot of her in the corner and then the, the, the thing that really gets people is when that she's like floats away like the swimming silently in the background like away or whatever she does and oh god that like that moment that gets such a great like people start laughing but it's clearly such an uncomfortable like they don't know what to do with that image because they're so horrified it's it's yeah it's and this is a movie by the way here's the other big compliment like you i've seen many horror films and i'm kind of jaded i'm older now not a lot ever scared me in the first place but i can tell you like even the second time through where i was watching this movie and i knew it was coming i was very aware of moments where my heart was fucking pounding like i was like so nervous for scenes like even like the scene in the corner i was like this movie is fucking working on me and i just saw it four days ago yeah i mean that that whole ending when from the moment we realize we've lost tony collette for good yeah what yeah when the light like shines over her face and yeah to her son waking up in bed and there's that very patient just slow incredibly tense sequence of him alone his dad's already been burnt he yeah. doesn't know it yet and he, he sits in his room for a little bit. And you see this floating apparition just drift by the background 
which is a lot again like that that shot in Rosemary's Baby towards the end where Mia Farrow's walking around her apartment and suddenly you just see this like old man tiptoe in the background suddenly yeah. out of nowhere and that's that moment is oh it's like weirdly funny but has always freaked me out so you have that moment and then he goes down this dark hallway and it takes forever and then that amazing moment when he's in the living room sees his dead dad and then you realize and I think you know, every audience member realizes it at a different moment that Tony Collette is up there in the corner just waiting for him. Yeah. Is it's so well structured. It doesn't rely on any musical cues to scare you. It lets you find the scare on your own, which is the best thing you can possibly do when you're writing an effective horror movie, I think. When you are able to somehow build something like that visually and let the audience find it instead of shove it down their throat. There's nothing more terrifying because if you're a little late to see an image like that, not only does the shock of it, seeing it finally freak you out, but then you have that that whiplash reaction of realizing it had been there and you hadn't even noticed it yet. And that's even scarier. Yeah. Because what are you not aware of, you know? Exactly. In in your in your field of vision. And then it just gets so fucking weird. It turns into a full-on like horror orgy at the end. A moment that I really want to highlight, and this is just a super simple thing, but to me it's a microcosm of why this movie's so effective beyond just being like a a genre film, beyond being a scary scene, because this scene isn't yeah. scary at all. So we were talking about Anne Dowd. So Tony Collette goes to this grief group before Charlie dies, then Charlie dies. And she goes back and she's sitting in the parking lot and she's debating whether or not to go in or not. And as she decides, like, fuck it, I'm just going to leave. And Dowd runs to the car for the first time and calls Tony Collette by name, uh, asks to talk to her, asks if she's coming into the grief group. Now, at that moment, we haven't met Ann Dowd yet. I can't. Maybe you'll know if she was in. I didn't. Yeah, I, did, I didn't spot her, her in the first scene, but then I, I, I wasn't looking I don't for think her. She's she, there. Yeah, I don't think she was there. Yeah, I, I genuinely don't think she's in there. But she clearly knows Tony Collette's character, and so as the audience member, we assume like, oh, you know, Tony Collette's probably been to a few, and maybe they've seen each other and exchanged hellos or something like that. But she calls her by name, and out doesn't know about Charlie's death yet, or so we think. Obviously, we find out later uh, the truth. But she brings up this story about her son dying and the way Tony Collette's face just melts not only with empathy for Anne but the the way she breaks and allows herself to feel something and open up to a person is so beautiful yeah. and sad so as a drama it's really really effective and as a horror movie that is setting up this finale it's even better because it completely takes you off guard the manipulation taking place in that moment. It's such an effective character beat for Ann Dowd to come in at that moment and introduce herself that way because it brings into question, okay, did she ever have a son who drowned? Probably not. Why did, did they plan Charlie's decapitation? Like, was it somehow set up that they were going to try to kill her to get a male host? Because what we find out at the end of the movie is that's what they needed to do. Right. Right. So there are all these things now that come into play. For King King Pyman. Yes. And and to me that's uh, the like uh not a red herring. What's the term? Uh it's, MacGuffin? it's not yeah, it's not quite a MacGuffin, but it kind of is. Like that to me the actual specifics and they spend very little time on it, which I'm 
grateful not, for. Yeah, it's not a MacGuffin. It's like because MacGuffin's like what everyone's after in the movie that is of no actual use or purpose. Like it's just an idea. And it it obviously does have purpose and use, but the specifics yeah. of why they're doing what they're doing. He needed to tell us something, but he spends very little time on it, which keeps it a little more mysterious, which I appreciated. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just a simple scene like that, which you wouldn't really see in your average horror movie and in your average Oscar bait drama would come off as really ham fisted or could really be done in a non subtle way. They just nail moments like that, which is really endear you to the story itself. And that just helps blindside you to all the genre workings that's going on in the movie i agree all right so we are gonna try and not run too long but i feel like we have so much more to say about this movie like i could just keep talking forever uh we're gonna talk more about it at the end of the year yeah we're gonna talk more about it i'm sure at the end of the year but so like oh wait breaking news breaking uh, news breaking news breaking news literally just got a text from a very good friend of mine ryan flaherty who's also a big horror buddy as it is 9 41 p.m la time i know he was seeing hereditary and he just texted me, dude, with like nine U's. Holy fuck, that just fucked my shit up. So we have another hereditary fan. All right, well, then I guess that leads me to my next question. We're enjoying yes. it. We're loving it. It's got a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. What is this trend besides, like, I obviously there's this stupid dismissal of, like, people are stupid and trailers are lying to people. But why is it so hard, you think, with horror films that are getting critically raved about over the last few years, the It Follows, the Babadooks, the Hereditaries, the, you know, those types of movies that have come out, they all get amazing reviews, and then they have a good audience, you know, first weekend out, and then the movies get absolutely torn apart. They get D-plus cinema scores, which, for those of you who don't know, cinema scores are largely about audience expectations. They rate people, they ask people, they kind of give a poll, uh, uh, as people are walking out of the theater and be like, hey, what would you think of that? And people are like, oh, it sucked. Or they're like, that was great. Like Marvel movies always get like an A+. And that's generally because those movies are providing people exactly what they expected when they were going into those theaters. Whereas something like this, I think obviously there's... They thought they were going to get a scary movie, but it was sadder than they thought it was going to be. It was slower than they thought it was going to be. But I guess my question is like, how does that go to a D plus? Like, are people really that upset that it just was like, maybe 15 minutes longer than they're used to or like there was like just a little bit more character development than they're maybe used to like i just i guess i don't understand like how is it a d plus how do people get so extreme about like hating it or thinking it's stupid like what is this dismissal you think of these intellectual critically raved about horror films by mass audiences it's interesting uh the the movie that immediately came to mind when i heard about the d plus cinema score was mother which did sure. not have nearly the re- the reviews that Hereditary did, but had an equally awful cinema score. And although the theater, the crowd that I saw Hereditary with overall seemed to really like it. And I will note that I saw it on a Monday night, so not the weekend, on a weeknight. And it was completely sold out, which to me is a very good sign, which means word of mouth is spreading a little bit. So hopefully that cinema score is a little misleading and it's just the opening night thing. But to me, ultimately, that stuff, more than anything, comes down to marketing. And that's why I thought of Mother, because Mother was marketed as this big, wide-release horror movie. And the way they presented it made it look like it would be in the vein of a Conjuring movie or paranormal activity, not in terms of plot, but that type of horror movie. 
And it's totally not that. It's an art house movie. It's a complete art house film. So when you have this wide release of a movie like that, that's very difficult. I will not... Hereditary is not for everyone. Neither is Mother. It's super... Hereditary is super slow. It's very artistic. It takes a long time to get where it's going. And not every audience member is going to be into that. Like, there are a lot of people who purely just want escapism. They want dumb fun. They want to go on a Friday night like the theater you saw so they can laugh at the movie with their friends. And Hereditary is not going to give you that. And neither is Mother. And I think a big reason why you get these these really strong negative audience reactions are because people feel betrayed. Like they probably saw the trailer for hereditary, which are full of all these loud, scary moments and thought, well, where the fuck was that for the first hundred minutes of this thing? You know? And they're not, they're not looking for an intense drama to really stew over. Like they're looking for the nun or something. So I think a big reason is that another reason why I think, you would get a D versus like a B minus, which a B minus is considered a bad cinema score, you know, Exactly. in terms of Hollywood. Like if you get that on your opening weekend, you think, oh, we're probably fucked. That so means word of mouth probably won't be very good on the movie. Exactly. Which it just means everyone was kind of tepid on it. Like it's a big meh, which means you'll get your good first weekend and then it's over. Something like a D beyond the marketing, I would think it's because it is challenging and it's very, very disturbing and you kill a little kid. And when you combine all of those things, I think people are going to really react strongly to it, especially when it's not what they're expecting to see. You also do like you not only behead the kid, you do like an extreme close up for like 15 seconds of like it's rotting head in the middle of the desert with bugs all over it. Yeah. And then you have old man penises like of bloated. Oh, every the time end. there was a dick on screen, people laughed. I was like, come yeah. on, guys. Grow so up. I, I mean, and you know how I am personally. I will never judge a person's intelligence based on their taste in movies because you know i like some fucking hot garbage sure and i genuinely like it and i will also rate and uh, criticize uh films that have a higher aim much more intensely than i would a dumb film like i would never give something like jurassic world an f unless it was offensively bad like unless it had some type of propaganda in it you know it fucking might be man but it's not going it's not trying to be an a plus movie that's not its aim so i'm not going to i'm going to grade it on a curve and i think something like hereditary if you were in the mood for a maybe a a horror movie with a higher aim and it didn't deliver you're going to grade it much more harshly than you would if it was just you know if hereditary was paranormal activity 7 or something yeah you know and i think well i mean things i've heard outside of the audience too is like people i think they're aware of rotten tomatoes and everything now that's a very common uh reference point for people and i heard murmurings of the theater like that movie has a 98 percent on rotten tomatoes and i think also people misread rotten tomatoes i think people think that the percentage means that the movie's like 98 percent good like it's a perfect film or something like that and i'm like no yeah. that means like everybody that means 98 percent of critics gave it like at least a b minus you know, we're like more positive than negative. Yeah, we're more positive yeah. than negative on it. It doesn't mean like that everyone gave the movie an A and thinks it's a ninety eight percent perfect. Like that's how you read Metacritic, but that's not how you read Rotten Tomatoes. And I think people really read that wrong, and I think that gives people a false sense of expectations. And like maybe they don't the marketing, but you know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I feel like if you went in that movie looking for a horror movie, you got a lot of horror. There's you know, you get be a, a fucking beheading, you get ghosts. You get 
you get multiple demons. beheadings. Yeah, you get mo- tons of beheadings. There's tons of heads rolling everywhere in this fucking movie. You get the fucking <laughs> piano wire beheading. Jesus. There's a that, close. Oh my god. There's a close up during the piano wire scene that's so eerily. She looks so fucking similar to Carrie, like uh, Sissy, yes. Spa- Sissy Spacek yes. and Carrie. The it's eyes. fucking incredible. Yeah, the eyes, the way it's lit, the framing. Like she looks so similar to Carrie. It was fucking incredible. But I, I, I unfortunately, we got to wrap it up. We got to get moving because you know this movie that we don't want this to uh, run too long. Well, one one quick thing about the cinema score, and then I'll move on. So yeah, I, yeah. I saw it Monday night, Tuesday. I went into work and. I started talking to a producer on Mamma Mia, and I mentioned, hey, have you seen Hereditary yet? And the producer said, no, I heard it was hot garbage. I said, really? I said, and the producer said, yeah, I got a D-plus cinema score. And I kind of laughed, and he did not laugh. And I said, oh, do you, you guys take that seriously, right? And he said, without any sarcasm, it's all I look at. And... That kind of broke my heart, but it also made me... I, like, really had to start defending it and say, trust me, this is just not what people were probably expecting. It's a really, really great movie that happens to be horror. you got to check it out. And I think I convinced this person, but that was telling to me that that cinema score carries so much weight, even if the marketing is just all wrong, which I think gets us into one of the next topics we wanted to talk about, which is how you target your audience, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, well, I was just saying like, similarly to you, there was a guy who I work with who said he was going to go see it. And I kind of just gave him a a little warning, like, Hey, just so you know, this is like a serious adult drama that turns into a horror movie eventually. Like, don't just kind of be ready for that. Kind of like, it's like when I tell people who are watching brawl and cell block 99, I'm like, Hey, just so you know, it takes a little while before they get to prison. As I feel like just having that little bit of information helps people out, like gets them just like a little bit more prepared for what they're getting into. And my, that guy who I t- told that to came to me and he said, Hey, I went to go see it. And I really liked the movie a lot, but I'm very happy that you told me that ahead of time. It like, he said it like kind of like helped him kind of get in that mindset, like cool. before he went into it. Well, so, you know, speaking of marketing and everything, one way that one company is trying to market and get people back into the movies is MoviePass. Uh, I'm a MoviePass member. You're a MoviePass member. It seems like too good of a deal for people like us to pass up, people who go to the movies all the time, basically $9.95 a month for unlimited movies. There's some some restrictions now. They've increased some of those restrictions over the past couple months, but largely, you know, pretty restriction-free. And, you know, you can go see all this kind, you know, tons of movies for $9.95. It's ridiculous. And it seems like too good of a deal. And, like, people like us have been skeptical and I wanted to talk to Tom about this article that I read in Vice this week. It was an interview with Ted Farnsworth, the head of MoviePass's parent company. And basically he was talking through the way the business works and explaining that the idea was not for them to profit right away. And their idea, they always knew they were going to lose money right away. And, you know, they kind of talked through it. And I, I sent the article to Tom because I was really curious what he thought of it. And... You know, I guess, yeah, so you just read it. Tell me what you think of it, because I'm curious, as myself a MoviePass member, you know, how long can this go on? Like, do you do you read this article and feel more comforted? Do you feel less comforted knowing how the how, how the data of your lifestyle is, you know, being sold off to buyers? You know, that's basically what uh, he implies. Um, well, there was that hullabaloo about um, one of the MoviePass execs talking about how they track you before and after you see a movie a few weeks ago or a month or two ago, uh, which was definitely disconcerting, but also not surprising. I just assume everyone fucking does it now. 
So he mentions that briefly and says, like, I know the guy was joking, but it didn't come off that way. I call bullshit on that. They're tracking as much as they can. They're harvesting all of our information, and they're going to try to profit off I it. assume I'm always being tracked by everyone. Yes. I just, especially a deal this good, I'm like, okay, you're obviously doing something with my info. Just don't steal my identity. So, whatever. That's the devil's bargain I went into with MoviePass. In terms of being concerned about the future of the company, honestly, I don't really care because this just, anytime MoviePass is around right now at the cost, just seems like a bonus. And I'm personally not expecting it to last. Based off of the article you sent me, especially comparing it to an article that we're about to discuss after that I read first, which is much more in-depth about a company that is truly huge and successful. Uh, This, to me, just seems like a a misfire. I just don't... I can't imagine it having any long-term success. I mean, this guy goes on and on about their partnership with the movie American Animals, which I'm excited to see. I think it looks good. But it's a small film, and the way he's talking about it, he's acting like it's going to be a game-changer. And I just don't see that happening at the extreme cost the the expense yeah. that they're bleeding well here's right the now. here's the quote from him the, so the question is what reassurances do you have to potential customers and he says the only thing i can say to them is we're doing 995 a month and if you go to one movie what's your exposure nothing if we're not around next month you're not paying nothing we're so confident where we are i'm not worried about that the money side is the least of our worries it's customer service growth how to handle growth the options like bringing on a guest plan, a family plan, those things. Right. If customer service is your biggest concern, then why are you already tightening the noose around the options for moviegoers? I mean, initially, I feel like I understand those. I'm kind of like willing to buy into like why some of those like crack down, like especially the like buying the or now you have to upload a picture of your movie stub. You have to upload a picture of your stub. You can't see the same movie twice, which is fine. I mean, I, I again. This, it's such a steal, regardless. If you go to... He talks about how the average moviegoer sees four a year. His goal is to double that. So the average moviegoer sees eight movies a year, which would pretty much make you break even on your movie pass deal, generally. At least in America, and like the average ticket price, you know, if you pay $120 and you go see eight movies, that's like 15 bucks a movie ticket. So that would pay for itself. Or you're like Tom and I, and you see at least eight a month. Yeah, I mean, you go twice a month, and you're you're saving twenty dollars every month if you use Movie Pass. And I go more than twice a month. And to be, so can I tell you my little secret? What I saw, I saw Hereditary twice, and I might have not uh, used the right ticket when I used my Movie Pass. You, you know, movie I might have passed just, a different film. I Movie Passed a different movie. So, and I Which still one? uploaded my ticket. Which one? I ramp Rampage. Hey, good on Rampage. You got some money. Like Rampage got some some movie pass money from me. It was the it was the closest screening time, so well, that's why I chose. He that. also talks about how they have a partnership with the Landmark Theater chain. So uh, the assumption is what it seems like he's insinuating is they don't have to pay. Movie Pass doesn't have to pay quite at one hundred percent of ticket cost to the Landmark Theater chain. They probably have a bulk discount of say if a movie ticket is. maybe they're paying eight for every ticket, but they do have to reimburse the theaters for every ticket that is quote unquote purchased on a user's movie pass app. And his idea is that if they can get to 5 million users, they're going to be able to break even and then eventually start to turn a profit off of targeted marketing off of 
deals with studios, the way that they can basically harvest our information and get hyper-specific about how the studio should be um, advertising to people. And this ties in a lot to the other article that we read to discuss on this episode, where the idea of demographics based off of age and gender are really falling apart. Yeah. And not nearly as useful as they used to be, which I think is great. I think that's a good thing. And we need to get more specific. We have all of this extra information at our fingertips. Why not go as hyper specific as possible? As a horror movie fan, I want a company to promote horror movies more than the next Nicholas Sparks TV edit or book adaptation. I'm not interested in those movies. So sure. I don't need to see those pop up when I'm scrolling, you know, Instagram or something like that. And it's, it's smart that they do that. It's creepy, but it's, it makes sense. I just don't know how movie pass climbs out from the hole they're in and how their, how their app is such a game changer in a way that's sustainable without having to put, severe restrictions on the product like you can only go see one movie a week or something or just upping the cost eventually which i they're gonna do he says they're not but there's if netflix is going to keep increasing every now and then the cost of their monthly subscription there's no way movie pass can survive without doing that as well i when what he implies from the article it's not just the data of who is seeing what and he's talking about i think what their master plan is that they not only want to make a uh, base kind of number, dollar number off of subscriptions, but they also want to be making the predominant amount of their profits probably from selling that data and that to studios, to marketing companies, to who basically whoever's bidding. And not only is it who is going to see movies, but they're also looking at like, where are you checking in at? Or how far are you from the theater? Like, what? How close are you willing? How far are you willing to drive for that movie? How often are you going? What like what times are you going to those movies? Uh, you know, those types of things are being com- compared with all. You know, all these different data points are being cross-checked, and it's not just one piece of information. It's all. It's however million different ways you can break down that type of information that's what's being sold here and i guess you know like you said but how valuable is that information yeah like i go to the movies based on the time of day is based on my day that day you know like not only that but i feel like these studios maybe not as hyper specific as your walking location to a theater but you have to be within 100 yards to check in via movie pass right yeah, so, you have to be at the theater anyway. Unless they're doing what that executive says, in which they have since backtracked and said they are not doing, and tracking us beforehand and then afterwards, they're not going to know until we're 100 yards from a theater anyway. right? I think they know when... I think the idea is that they know whenever the app is active where you are. So if you're searching movie theater show times at home through the app, they know that you're searching at home. So if you see that Hereditary is playing in a theater seven miles away... And then 20 minutes later, you're at that theater seven miles away. Exactly. Compared to like, oh, they checked it and then they went 10 hours later. You know, those are... I guess the studios, though, have so much of this information already that to me... I mean, not specifically like that, but in terms of who's buying what, when they're going, what type of people are interested in what and when. That, to me, MoviePass seems like a glorified middleman more than a game changer of any kind. And really, at the end of the fucking day, man, no one knows anything because last year you had Get Out almost winning Best Picture, and this year you have Han Solo being a flop. 
You know, no one knows anything. Yeah. So anyway, all right, yeah, the other article we want to talk about, like speaking of data, because I sent you that article on MoviePass because I was really interested in it, um, largely because of this other article that I wanted to talk to you about. This article, much better written, much more in-depth. It's from Vulture. Uh, It is called Inside the Binge Factory. And basically what it does is it breaks down some of the personalities that are of the executives who are doing a lot of the programming at Netflix and what some of their philosophy is for the future and how they're... uh, uh, what, how they're choosing shows, who they're, how they're choosing who they work with, what demographics they're trying to hit, and what their plan for the future is. And it kind of lets you in on a bit more into the company than I think I've ever personally seen. I think this was the most in-depth I've ever seen them kind of be, or most open I've seen them be about their process over there. And it was just, I thought it was a very fascinating read, and I thought some of the things they said were really kind of illustrated exactly how forward-thinking they've been. And I think sometimes their head's in the right mind space. I'm very curious about where it leads to in the future. I don't think even they know. But yeah, I, you know, Netflix, it's a great article. And I think we should, you know, link it up in the show notes. For We're going to link to both it. of those. Uh, yeah, I highly, highly recommend this. If you're interested in the business side of Hollywood at all, or if you're fascinated by Netflix in any way, you have to read this article because they are notoriously. Um, they keep things close to the vest a lot. And this is the most open, like you said, that I've ever seen them. And it's a super fascinating read. It really delves into their mindset. It gets into specific lingo that the executives use when talking about whether or not to review certain shows. I mean, the whole conceit of the article, the hook is that Netflix produces more original television content, content than any studio or network ever has in the history of ever, Right. Yeah, And they are still growing almost exponentially. And how are they able to do this and survive? And they go a little bit into how they're still, you know, a few billion dollars in debt because of the rapid expansion. But unlike MoviePass, where the stock market is very down on MoviePass and doesn't think it has much longer, the general estimates of Netflix is that it's worth, you know, at points it's been worth up to $150 billion is what it's been valued at. And that yeah. it's a legitimate contender to places like Disney and Time Warner Cable where this article posits that a big reason Disney purchased 20th Century Fox which is you know I've read elsewhere is to compete with Netflix for their upcoming streaming streaming service and Netflix has had that huge of an impact on the industry and Disney's has not only do they have fucking Disney they have Indiana Jones they have Star Wars they have Marvel they have Pixar like they're they've got plenty in the bank already and they're yeah. still intimidated yeah, they and as they should be, man. Netflix is a fucking behemoth. So this article, what I loved about this article, besides just nerding out about the the industry lingo and specifics, is yeah. the mindset of a lot of the people at the top of Netflix. And I mentioned it, the idea that marketing for demographics like Nielsen ratings and playing to advertisers is starting to die off a little bit. And the Netflix model is much more specified towards the consumer's idea of satisfaction, which is awesome. That's the way it should be, you know? Like, television for years only existed as a way to sell products, and content was born from that, right? Now we have something like Netflix, which is completely changing the way we watch things. It's not scheduled TV. It is completely tailored to your own needs, it doesn't matter that it's eight o'clock and there's kids up and they need to no. like they can't they can't cuss at a certain time periods yeah. or whatever on this show, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't get commercials, so their model is the idea of more and more and more and more. 
you create more content, more people will sign up and subscribe, and there will be more hours of product to watch, which increases Netflix's revenue, which allows them to create more content. And it's just this insane, never-ending circle of of growth that, as of right now, has does not show any signs of slowing down. And I love it. I mean, eventually we're going to reach a tipping point, I think. Um, but well, like you go Sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, 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 no you, you go ahead. Okay, fine. So what I was going to say, yeah, because if you think about Netflix, the idea is like you have something like NBC, ABC, the big, you know, the big networks, Fox, whoever they have to have, like we were talking about eight o'clock, you have to have this type of programming that appeals to these broadcasters and fits within these restraints that has been popular and proven. And that's why you have a lot of safe, restricted shows that are very uh, scripted and very, uh, very safe. And, you know, just your CSIs, you're not very... That's not where you're finding yeah. the most groundbreaking television right now. And basically what Netflix is trying to do is they're going to have, not only are they going to have The Ranch and Longhorn and kind of more like adult shows, like they're going to have Gracie and Frank for older women. They're going to have stand-up comedy from the biggest comedians. Like they're stealing that from HBO. HBO used to be the big stand-up comedian. Now Netflix has Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle specials. They also have all these documentaries, true crime documentaries. They have all these medical, they have all these cooking shows. Now they have all these original movies with giant movie stars like Brad Pitt and Will Smith and Martin Scorsese is making movies for them now. Like they're trying to have this mass appeal so that whoever you are, they have something for you. They can go and they can make something like an independent arty show within Z's and Zari. And then they can go do Bojack Horseman over here and then they have Ashton Kutcher making the ranch over here appealing to a whole different crowd, you know, and that's that kind of wide net that they're reaching is incredible. Yeah, the idea for TV for a long time where that certain ideas were too niche and they just wouldn't appeal to enough of an audience. And Netflix's entire philosophy seems to be if we can get everybody to sign up for our service, there is literally no such thing as too niche. We're gonna have... And they also they also know that people are going to tune in no matter what to these people, so they can let these people do whatever they want. Yeah, and you know the, the one thing that definitely amused me was uh, the idea that all these Netflix higher-ups, they talk about, you know, Reed Hastings talks about, you know, how it's 70% gut and 30% data, and the data isn't nearly as important as people make it out to be. And there's this, like, mythic quality to the way Netflix hoards their information and doesn't even share with the the show creators that work for Netflix, which it, I mean, not only is it a great story, you know, this idea that no one will really know the ratings, even though he talked about the idea that there are certain shows like Stranger Things, I'm sure, has been viewed by more people than maybe watched an entire season of Game of Thrones, you know, collectively. Like, they, they have certain properties that are so huge that they would dwarf anything on traditional television and they're not sharing that with anybody and i think that's really interesting because it creates this this us versus them thing of like we want to be in the know about what's going on and i think that's what makes the article so alluring but i also think he's intentionally trying to downplay something that is super important to them because the hyper specific way that they can track data and and track not only that but you know when people stop watching a season of television if they bow out at episode three 
or if they watch a movie and stop after 30 minutes or if the majority of people make it all the way to the end, how they were able to use all of that information going forward yeah, to create more content, content and tailor it to specific people. One of the guys has a quote, my Netflix is not your Netflix, which is totally true, you know? That's exactly how we all handle it. You have, you start dating a girl and she starts using your Netflix and suddenly your algorithms. She fucks up your algorithm. Yeah, completely change and you're getting all these recommendations of shit that you're not Or you have kids in. and your kids, uh, your whole like shit's full of kids shows. Yeah, you know? and you just create your own account, like your own profiles within your accounts and stuff like that. And there's just this ever expanding library that is. Every week. It's, it's unmatched, man. Like I didn't even know that, uh. Santa Clarita Diet had been approved for season three, and I haven't even watched season two yet. Like, there's just so many things that I learned in that article. They talk about some movie that they were shocked what a huge hit it was, and the guy from Netflix says, I bet you hadn't even heard of this movie until I mentioned it, even though it was probably one of the most watched films of last year. And I was that per I had never heard of the movie he was talking about. Never heard of it, because it was not targeted to me at all. You know, it seemed like it was some teen drama. So Tech Diff's Phil's battery died. He's still listening right now, so he can buzz into my ear if he wants me to say anything. But just to wrap up the article idea, it's a really fascinating read. Netflix is a giant, and the reason why I think they're going to remain successful for the time being is not only the the sheer quantity that they have, but the quality in the way they pick their projects. And I think the article does a really good job of getting into how they're able to use a combination of data, really creative, forward-thinking people, and great getting great talent on their roster to just amass this giant library of stuff. Um, there's a kind of a counterpoint used in the article where an unnamed source in Hollywood mentions the idea that Netflix, the downside to Netflix is they're creating so much so fast that a lot of great content gets lost in the shuffle and kind of buried which, if that's the most negative thing you can say about Netflix, I think you're really struggling to find something because they're not following the traditional model of a show airing on a Tuesday night and then it goes away or a movie that opens to 3,000 screens and then three weeks later it's gone. Netflix is going to be there for the foreseeable future as long as there's the internet and as long as they don't file Chapter 11. So take all the time in the world to go watch whatever you want to watch, you know, like I'm excited to see that show lost in space, which premiered to mix reviews, whatever it's on my queue. I can start it in two years if I want to start it. And I think that model and that idea of tailoring everything to the user experience and not worrying about a financier outside of the creative side of things is what has made Netflix so successful. And yeah, just, just go read that article. It's super interesting, and you may even get a couple of recommendations like I did because they mentioned several things that I didn't even know was on Netflix because they have way too much stuff. Hey, I'm back. It, I got a little bit of juice. And, so And Phil's back as we're going to wrap up. Yeah, you Phil. can. so let's wrap up really quick. I got a little bit of juice running on gas, running on fumes here. So that's great. We've heard enough of your fucking thoughts. I'm just kidding. I was yeah. I was struggling over here. Thanks, thanks for wading through water there for me, buddy. You want to uh, recommend anything? Um. Oh yeah, I I saw the writer this week. I it is a short independent, not a short film. It is a small independent film that I saw over the weekend. It was a great palate cleanser from the horrors of Hereditary. It was quiet and about masculinity in America. It was made by an amazing director whose work I hadn't seen before. Uh, are you familiar with the movie at all? I know the movie. I haven't seen it. 
Yeah, it's one of the better movies I've seen this year. The movie's about uh, this guy who it's it's kind of like close up in terms of it got this real life guy who is a real life bull rider, not bull rider, like a horse rider, stallion rider in the rodeos who like, you know, and he gets his head kicked in uh, before the story starts. And the movie's about him, like basically coming to terms with the fact that he can't rodeo anymore and he's not going to be able to ever get on a horse again because it causes him brain seizures. And it's this guy in real life playing the role who's actually a rodeo guy. And he, the movie surrounds him with guys who are facing real injuries and real brain traumas that have happened to them. And they're playing themselves. His father and sister play themselves as real life versions of or fictional versions of themselves. The movie's directed by Chloe Zhao, who I don't know her work, but, you know, this got me really interested. It's one of the best movie, best reviewed movies of the year, so I want to go see that. So if you have a chance to go see that quiet, little, beautiful movie, I would highly recommend it. It's one of the better movies I've seen this year. Two horse movies for Phil. Two quiet, sad horse movies for Phil this year. Lean on Pete is the other one. Go see them both. I like my sad horse movies. No more riding, no more rodeos. If you don't stop, your seizures are gonna get worse. I had to sell Gus, Brady. I can't sell Gus. It's not like you can ride anymore. You seen Lane? Remember when he went three for three in McCool Junction and won it? Yeah, that was a good night for Lane. There you go. I plan on seeing Hereditary again and The Incredibles. That's up next for me. I have, yeah, I have The Incredibles sitting downstairs because I'm going to rewatch it before tomorrow or this weekend at some point. Hell yeah! I will say um, I won't recommend it because I haven't watched it, but I'm I'm happy that Ocean's Eight overperformed slightly, at least expectations, uh, especially after the awful reaction on film Twitter that. Ghostbusters received the all-female reboot of Ghostbusters and the fact that it, you know, mildly disappointed, at least in America, at the box office. I'm happy to see another all-female reboot do well. Um, There's no reason why those films shouldn't do well. So good on you, Ocean's 8. I hope uh, you're worth seeing. I'll probably go check you out. Um, I don't really have a lot to recommend I don't think. I'm going to throw out Kids See Ghosts as well. Like we don't need to talk a yeah. whole lot about it, but the good music still releasing stuff. That was I think I think it's better than Yay. That's all I'll say. Right. I now. disagree with that, but it is good and uh he has another one coming out Friday and then the Nas one as well. I think Nas we'll is on more. Friday. Oh, that's the next one. Yeah. I thought it was I thought that was the fifth and final. Um No, we'll there's a more. Tatiana Taylor album coming out as well. I th- uh, so I had the order reversed. We'll talk about Kids See Ghosts in a little more detail next week when we have some time. Sure. I will say that uh, as we're recording this, by the time people listen to it, the World Cup will have already started, but it officially starts Thursday morning, so in about 11 or 12 or 13 hours. And uh, even if you're not a soccer fan, try to watch a few games. The World Cup is, is fun, and it only happens once every four years. So props awesome. to the World Cup. I'm awesome. excited. All right, well, that is the show for this week. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show every week. They always are great to see. Every one of them helps out incredibly. Thank you to Zach Pitts for the theme music. Uh, Please go check out our Facebook page. Leave us uh, some comments on the episode. Uh, Please check out our YouTube page. Let us know what you think as well on there. And please find us on Twitter. Uh, Tom is at Big Fat Bond. That is all one word.
Phil died again. Uh, so I'll, I'll just do the wrap up again. So okay, Phil's done. Even if he gets back in, I'm I'm muting him. He's not allowed in anymore. He's had too many technical difficulties. So that's our show for this week. Thank you, Zach Pitts, for the music. You're a true gentleman and a scholar, and I wish I could kiss you, but I've never met you. You can go to our YouTube page, I believe, if you search How's That Day on YouTube. Phil, is that right? So go to How's That Day on YouTube. Uh, We also have a Facebook page. You can check us out there, probably under Phil's name because I'm not on Facebook anymore. Check us. So, okay, Phil is telling me it's under How's That Day on Facebook, so check it out there. You can also find us on Twitter. I am at Big Fat Bond. That's all one word. Phil is at Phil Wiedenheft. You can spell his last name by seeing it in the episode description. But just in case, it is W-I-E-D-E-N-H-E-F-T. And I'll also say, uh, find us on Instagram because Twitter is usually my angry political rants and not as much film stuff besides a few retweets. But Instagram, I think I'm a little more active. It's Bindi Tom Bindi, B-I-N-D-I Tom Bindi. And Phil is at P Wiedenheft on Instagram if you want to go check him out. That is our show for this week. We love all of you. Next week, we're going to talk about some more fucking shit, I guess, because that's all we do. And we love doing it. So on behalf of Phil and myself, we love you all so, so, so much. You're all our best friends in the entire world. And I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. Goodbye. You still there?